Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The Mean Team. Mega Bears Fan. A composite show archive segments from previous episodes that got cut due to time. Recorded for episode 286 with Dan Q, Makalua, the me and team. Imagine and Brown. From rockpapershotgun.com, creating illusion of a world in strategy games. Now, yes, they talk to Firaxis Games, but they also talk to Paradox. I don't know if we talked about them before on the show. I don't think there'd be any reason to talk about them on the show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> essentially, the preface to this article, written by Oliver Milne. Big, slow, sweeping strategy games expose their rules in a way no other game does. There is no attempt to hide exactly how everything works. The stats, their interactions, are all laid out and plain to see. I call BS. Sorry, <laughs> but no. That's not true. It used to be. It should be, but it isn't. Yet these games are utterly dependent on their ability to evoke a sense of place, scale, and history. They have to be much more than just a fancy chessboard. They have to feel alive, or they're just not much fun. How can these games survive and thrive under such conflicting pressures? To start off with, the creative director at Amplitude Studios, I'm not going to try to fully pronounce this name. I'm going to condense it just to uh, remain genless. He says, it's all about depth and thoroughness of imagination. But it needs to be logical. It needs to make sense. Whereas uh, Johan Anderson, creative director at Paradox, takes a different tact. Quote, I want people to feel that there's a world in there, and I don't want it to be, when you're looking behind a curtain, that it's just a man there with two strings. I want it to be like thousands of strings, at least, so you don't get fooled. We don't pay attention to the details, but we know that the details are there, and you don't really need to have all those details for you to assume that there are things in between, unquote. Well, that says a lot about that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he and I have had some direct interaction here and there on Paradox Files. So That's good times. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Whereas Ed Beach, lead designer on Civilization VI, I do think you have a richer game experience with more agents involved, but it becomes a tricky challenge to present that information to players in a concise and appropriate way so they can get all those details without it becoming overwhelming. And just as an aside, that very much comes down to your user interface, where you need the basics whether you're new to Civilization or you're new to Civilization VI, you got to have the ability within that UI to be able to get to those particular details that we know the game is already tracking and present it to us in some additional overlays so we don't have to go into the modding workshop to find these things. But anyway, quote, we try to make sure that your opponents in the world feel like they're distinct personalities and that they have a lot of personality and character, and those are wrapped up in who they were historically, unquote. Then the historically part, this is where Civilization Beyond Earth has often been derided, and I think Civilization VI does well just as Civilization V and Civilization before, before that, where the leaders do feel distinct. Above and beyond the leaders themselves, Beach sees the opportunity for drama and timing. 
I think there are moments in any good game that you want to immediately share with your friends, something that surprises you. These are the kind of moments that make you want to make sure, not just once, the Civ game is a long game, you want to make sure that's happening four or five different times. Unquote. We don't want to return to the, so I'm going to win in about 50 turns, but I've got to hit end turn. I'm looking at you, Initial Culture Victory in Civilization V. He also talks about that this change of setting is not merely cosmetic, but fundamentally changes the gameplay. We introduce brand new mechanics and systems midway through the game, for example, espionage. The other thing that we do is take the existing mechanics, such as combat, and scale them up or twist the way that they work. And the key element of what all the designers agree is that it comes to the map. You need to be able to read it, understand it, and yet it needs to make you dream, says the person from Amplitude Studios. Whereas Beach adds, if we come up with a consistent style, if we made everything in the game world animate and move and be lit, all of a sudden the graphics were going to bring to life exactly what was happening in our game world, and that was going to be a powerful tool to draw our players in and engage them, unquote. Well, that's the thing. You want to be able to get people's attention, which I suppose if you get people's attention and then you've got people to purchase the game, maybe you're not concerned if people are still playing it in 10, 20, or I don't know, thousands of hours after the fact. But it's one thing to be able to get people's attention and then to be able to keep their attention, to want to play multiple games, to save a game and play some turns and then go back and try something different and then being able to share that information with other people and debate with other people about what the best choice was to then extend to a multiplayer situation where you want to play with other people, whether it's against the AI or cooperatively or cooperative-ishly. You remember that it is just a game, but you're willing to spend time (laughs) in the quote-unquote real world to play this game and play it over and over and over again. The phrase, one more turn, just one more turn, being ascribed to civilization isn't just because it sounds cool. For those of us that really enjoy the game, and if you're listening to this podcast, that's probably you, you know exactly what we're talking about. Now, there were some comments on this that I wanted to uh, pull out as well. From M. Tom 2 when Ed Beach said, quality over quantity, I stopped reading. What an idiot. Um, actually, he never used that phrase. That was a paraphrasing of the article's author. But what is the problem with quality over quantity? How is that idiotic? I would rather have five systems that work really well than ten systems that work kind of eh. Which, of course, Civ has not always been successful with, admittedly. Unfortunately, yeah. But, yeah, well-made systems with depth would be preferable to ones that don't work and then are never really made to work. Future patches, that's true. And as you're adding things, you know, downloadable content pieces are particularly expansion packs, or you're adding or you're modifying or you're expanding something, you want to ensure that it still works with what was already there. I don't want to feel like I'm playing a different game within a game all of a sudden. And so that requires rebalancing in addition to balancing of the new things, which of course has not always been successful. But I would say for the most part, through multiple patches, and sometimes those patches took too long and it took too many patches initially, but oftentimes, by the time a Civ game is complete, it's decent. It's a decent play. Yeah, I thought one of the more interesting comments in this article was not one of Ed's comments. It was the guy from Amplitude says, As game designers, we first set the rules and then find factions that will have just one purpose to break at least one of these major rules. There is a lot of that in Civ. Not necessarily breaking major rules, but things like unique units don't require resources, or this Civ has very Civ-specific bonuses, like Australia getting extra housing by settling on a coast. All of those, if they don't break the major rules, they at least bend them, hopefully, in interesting ways. Yeah, I think it's 
Not, as you say required is a strong word, but I think it's almost expected or it ought to be expected from game designers that once you release your game into the wild, as it were, that it's going to be picked up by not just different individuals, but many individuals and many more individuals than you could possibly have during any kind of testing and they challenge it. And then it becomes, what is your response? Just like in society, you set out a rule. Some rules become laws. Not all rules are necessarily laws, but all laws are rules. And then when someone breaks it, what is your response? Are you going to punish the player? Are you going to punish the person for doing that? Or are you going to modify what the rules are and what the laws are in the game? That opens up a dialogue between the people who are playing your game or trying to play your game. And even if you decide not to change anything, that you should leave it the way it is, you know it's been tested and it's been put through the rigors. And then that just makes your game that much better than if it had never been challenged in the first place. Wow, you answered a question that wasn't even asked. <laughs> Brad was talking about civ design, faction design, and you answered a question about exploit stuff. That was weird. Well, it's an extension of that. I was agreeing and then extending on that. It comes from the design that people are going to try to find a way, or at least I kind of took that comment, as trying to find a way to break the rules, try to do things that quote-unquote shouldn't do. No, no, no. It had nothing to do with that. It's a question of once you set out all the game design, you go, okay, now we need people to interact with that game design as factions. And to make them not all the same, they all have to make adjustments to the rules and to make them play different, especially like I've played Endless Space 2 and they've got plenty of factions in there of all the base ones that just throw out one of the rules or like modify it so heavily that when you play them you do not play them the same as you would play somebody else that's very different than do we answer somebody's exploit use with a bug patch or something well and there's an intersection there that is you may bend the rules through some feature of a particular faction but then you come back later and realize it's either overpowered or it's actually broken, it doesn't work the way you intended it, but it may be overpowered and you need to dial it back, like the breathtaking versus healing bonus got dialed back in an earlier patch. Yeah, it's game balance, but still provides for the adjustment of the rule. Right. We've been oh, that yeah. rule a little too hard. Yeah, yeah. But really, I mean, that's you kind of have to. You can't just go, okay, so we made all this design. Now everybody's going to be the exact same, and you have to play within the rules. I mean, yes, you can for some. Like when you play chess, the people who play the two different sides don't get to play differently because <laughs> that would be weird. But for the vast majority of stuff in a normal game for Civ or whatever, there are some hard and fast rules that must be followed. Otherwise, the breaking of some rules or the bending of some rules would just completely break the game. And you're playing a different game. Yeah. Say, giving in Civ, one faction has their own science and culture trees completely separate from everybody else's. That would be weird. Very much broken. <laughs> it would just cause too many problems to do that sort of thing in a game like Civ. Yeah, it would be one thing if there are different paths to go through a particular technology tree, or even, yeah. dare I mention it, a technology web as in Beyond Earth, but you're making the choice as opposed to, no, you're never going to be able to do this because you are not that particular civ. There, or there's no equivalent, especially, to what you're doing if you're playing that particular civ or that particular faction. Yeah, like in Civ, if there was, say, a Civ that never touched the water ever, and then they would have a special tech tree that has no sailing in it, or any boats whatsoever. That would just be weird. And that sort of thing can be found in 
other games. Paradox. <laughs> I mean, it would be one thing if you decided with your map that there was going to be no water. Then in which case, well, then there's no point in having sailing full stop. But <laughs> yeah. that's different altogether again. Yeah. Or say that you had a sieve that only got their science tree based on Eurekas. So if you completed a Eureka, you would get a tech opened up to research. That would be weird. And of course, this article goes into more than just civilization, but being a civilization podcast, of course, can't help but focusing on that aspect. Trenchfoot says, What doesn't work for me personally is Civ's half-measure of generated maps and stereotypical leaders based on people who lived hundreds of years apart. Just give them random attributes that occur regardless of race or culture, in the same way that male and female attributes are potentially the same in a role-playing game. Um, there's already the suspension of disbelief uh, that you're going to, as a leader, live for thousands of years anyway. Uh, yeah. What happens in Civ is the artful and historically informed version of war propaganda. I'm not saying that this is a big social justice issue, just that I personally find it weird and the very opposite of immersive. Essentially, it's not smart enough. And I read that and I thought, are you talking about the artificial intelligence now? He says, add in the linear aspects of development and research, and the civs can be addictive, but for me, aren't that interesting, which can be two separate things. It's got to be interesting in some respect if you're finding it addictive, and by addictive, meaning that you're playing it. Well, there's a very, very big difference between a historical game and what the other two are making. EU4 is time-limited. It's a very, very, very specific time cut. So they can basically utilize the short history there without having to worry about leaders live forever or other randomness happening. Endless legend and the space and all that, well, they don't have to care. It's fantasy, so it doesn't matter. Same with Stellaris, because I think that gets brought up in the article once or twice. They can make up whatever they want. Whereas Civ is very much forced to look at history to decide how things work. To that end, Jovian 9 talks about that he thinks the Civ games are fantastic, but he struggled to get into them. The effects of having its real-world historical factions in random places on a random map and having anachronous leaders who live for thousands of years is utterly immersion-breaking to me. EU and Endless Legends solve this problem, the former by committing to the historical setting fully and the latter by discarding it completely. I find myself able to enjoy each of them a fair bit more. Well, then I guess that comes down to a personal preference, less of a criticism of what Civ is specifically or any other game. Well, and the whole notion of EU and CK2 and all that being immersed in the historical setting, you know, that's true of the map, but the reality yeah. is mechanics don't actually match history. And also, how aware are most players of what Ferrara's governance looked like in 1480? There is a degree of arbitrariness around how they established that world. It's against historical backdrop. But neither CK nor an EU game ever turns out looking like an 1820s map. And the interesting thing is when they're trying to design this, it's difficult for them to balance the desire to make historical representations with the game mechanic abstractions, sometimes to a fault because they make arbitrary cutoffs that are not consistent to each other when it comes to implementing certain mechanics. For example, the Ottomans making Crimea March is a good example of that. It breaks compared to how most of the game mechanics function, and it's not really a perfect representation of what happened there historically either it can have adverse gameplay effects despite that it's not really historical and that's damaging to the game but it's an easy mistake to make when you're trying to mirror history to some degree 
Well, okay, you're starting with a historical basis. Even in EU4, you're not trying to 100% mirror history. Otherwise, it'd be a simulation and the player wouldn't be allowed to interact with it. Yeah, but the distractions are inconsistent <laughs> in how much they are trying to represent history. Like, you don't have space guns because it's a Renaissance mm-hmm. era thing. Okay, that's pretty obvious. But now you also have, like, enormous amounts of artillery you can just drag around over land, which is completely counter to the logistics of warfare in the period. Like, they completely abandoned period warfare logistics to the point where, in that regard, it is utter fantasy. But then if you introduce something that then is made based on the historical warfare and it does not interact well with the base mechanic, then you can get into trouble. And like, oh, but it's historical. Yeah, it doesn't fit your level of abstraction in other areas of the game. This is a big challenge in historical-themed games in general. And (laughs) Civ mostly gets around it by completely abandoning true history. And mostly the Civs are just a nod to their historical counterparts. But they're not trying to really make things accurate otherwise. Yeah, just sufficiently enough that you would go, oh, that leader is recognizable and that Civ existed somewhere, somehow. Yeah. Not that Australia really is the citadel of civilization and they really do mass produce spaceships. What? As... You mean it's not? <laughs> yeah. You really should have prefaced that with a warning there, man. Yeah. You know, these people should be sitting down. Someone could have injured themselves if they were standing mm-hmm. shocked by this. I know, totally. Also, Civ doesn't really do the variety of biomes and stuff like that very well either. Very big abstraction on that. Even the map itself is not. 100% accurate. Recorded for episode 288 with Makalua, Mad Jin, Drew Sane, Jonah Falcon, and the Chris D. about how the humble cottage systems favor from Civ 4 and you know the fact that it was taken out of Civ 5 and replaced with the trading posts you know he got a bit annoyed and you're suggesting that because in Civ 6 there's a distinct cap on growth for tall cities because of housing and how in like the early mid game housing is a real conundrum because neighborhoods aren't available and the only option is pretty much you know farm spam or god forbid you build an aqueduct don't so in general, <laughs> that is probably the most annoying part of Civ these days. Oh, you like that farm, right? Well, if you want to grow further, you have to build over and build an aqueduct. Yeah. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I will admit that it seems that people are looking for more interesting and dynamic ways to improve city housing instead of just plonking down the neighborhood, which maybe that's yeah, the case. I don't that's know. the thing. Yeah. But he was also mentioning there's no generic gold improvements except commercial hubs exist. Hello. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, trade routes. Trade routes are worth a lot. There's an so, insane anyway. amount of gold improvement. Yeah, there is yeah, like plenty of gold. gold in this game. Let's just ignore that bit. So, basically, <laughs> suggestion of builders plop down the initial cottage. It would give a gold and a housing, which I don't know. Okay, it's a bit odd. It would then grow either by being worked, like in Civ Four, for number turns, or you could have a project in the city that could target these. And then, for example, you could have the project develop cottage, which will then improve this cottage to say a village for example which would give an extra housing and an extra gold and you could maybe improve again further into a town for one more and eventually when you do get to urbanization and unlock neighborhoods you could then replace that cottage village town with a neighborhood and get a massive discount on the cost of the district 
Hey, I have a so, question. Why is this uh, unique tile better than all of the unique tiles in the game? Yeah, I, I don't think it would have to be a unique tile. It would pretty much have to just be a district. Be one of those districts that doesn't count against your cap. What is the minimum for a neighborhood in the game right now? It's less than three, isn't it? It's you dependent on the appeal of the tile. I guess not talking about. Yeah, I mean, you can have. Tile, yeah. You can spam so neighborhoods. Your neighborhoods will go yeah. between two and yeah, six, depending on the area. If if you're in an area that's like full of mines and rainforest, you're not going to get great neighborhoods. If you're yep. near a lot of coast, a lot of mountains, a lot of woods, you're going to get great neighborhoods. So mm-hmm. why would you even bother with a neighborhood when you can build a town? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. the same thing with the proposed district building. It's like, why would you have neighborhoods if you have I this? suppose it's more gates <laughs> yeah. of if you have the place where the neighborhoods can be worth plus six. However, he also did suggest that the neighborhood would possibly even get the seaside resort treatment and gain gold based on appeal. I think what people are bringing this up for is because they feel, I disagree, but they feel that you don't get enough housing until mm-hmm. neighborhoods come out. Yeah, there is potential when you grow. If you're actually trying to grow a city tall, there is potential to hit a housing cap. Granted, granted, you you should be building districts that have buildings that give you housing. Problem is, not that many of them. I mean, if you have, say, pagodas or you took a religion that has housing from shrines and temples, you can only get it from a university, from a barracks and a military academy. I don't mind as much because here's the thing. Florence in the Renaissance had a population of 50,000 people. You did not have cities the way we think of them. Well, Rome had more than a million people. Before it got okay, trashed. that's the exception that proves the rule. Yeah, though, yeah, you know? or not widespread plumbing. Yeah, let's just say people were using outhouses mostly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, I like the concept of the neighborhood as is because it does fit the concept that people didn't go flocking directly into the city until the industrial era, and you didn't have massive farms either. Even if everybody was a farmer in the neighborhood, it still didn't allow for big space. Neighborhoods is basically the representation of suburbs and commuting. And which yeah. we find it because most quote-unquote neighborhood districts, if you look at it from a city perspective, is all those little towns getting converted to a neighborhood suburb and a neighborhood of the main town because and, you know, it just got soaked in. Having the quote-unquote limit on housing, even if you do all the things like build an encampment, build a granary, you know, and all that, it's meant to make you feel like you're being restricted and you have to expand. Yep. Why expand if you could have a one city with 10 million people in it already? Yeah. To the point, maybe neighborhoods come earlier and they get called cottage village knit town and then you just improve it over time. But that's just semantics, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe it's, but it still counts as the district. It's mainly it's the medieval period, I think, is what the, the main issue is. Particularly as we were going on about castles earlier and how castles were basically self-contained cities. They also held a lot of people at that point. We're kind of missing that sort of, of area. Relatively. They relatively. Yeah. Relative. Yeah. I mean, not as Few much. Thousand. But maybe the solution is that kind of castle district that improves into the neighborhood later on, where you add, well, it only adds yeah. maybe well, like two cast- housing. Castles didn't get converted to neighborhoods. They just got converted to tourists. Well, <laughs> um, yeah. I'm, th- I'm thinking more about, I'm trying to think more about game like balance, because right now, the only way to get lots of housing in the mid game is pretty much to take monarchy and have all those walls. Yeah. Well, to be fair, most castles were reduced to rubble. I yeah, think. that too. Yeah, that yeah. too. Basically, the castle falls apart, but there's enough people there that they just start building 
better buildings, yeah. industrial buildings to make a neighborhood. Because right now, industrial era, you get huge amounts of bonus housing from the neighborhoods and the sewers. They both unlock at it around the same time. There's nothing in that mid-game yeah. sprawl. Sewers Maybe... really don't give you much in housing. Well, it's plus, yeah, it's not much, but it's plus two and it doesn't take up uh, space unlike the aqueduct. Yeah. Here's Perhaps... the thing about six and housing, though. When I first started playing, I felt constrained, and then I realized, no, the game is forcing me to build the encampment, because that's going to give me extra housing. Oh, and the granary is going to give me... And it's sort of like I started looking for ways to be able to get more population in cities, you know, and it forced me to pay attention a lot more. The game is telling you, build this district, dang it. The game's design isn't really based on huge cities, they're based on multiple cities. Which makes me wonder why there isn't more clamor for amenities rather than housing. Oh, trust me, I, I get amenities oh, yeah. rather well, you, pretty well. That's what the entertainment district for. The game would be best served by looking for a balance between going super wide with a lot of crappy cities and, and a if, couple of tall you, ones. If you're able to sprawl as much as you want, but say the uh, districts got bumped up to your first district isn't until first pop, and... You really shouldn't be going for tall cities too often. Like, you should be able to, say, in 10 cities, maybe four are tall at most. And then the rest are low and, like, farmers and other well, or that... mining and stuff like that. If you ask me, I think a simple way, and this kind of also ties into the game as you see it graphically, is that maybe there should be a small housing adjacency if you have a district adjacent to the city centre. Because you notice when you place that, the city kind of urban sprawls around the district mm -hmm. graphically. Maybe yeah. that should also take effect. Like, if you put a district next to a city, it should maybe be worth, you know, one housing. Or you need two districts adjacent to the city for an extra one housing. It's not much. It's maybe a small balance change, but, you know. Or you have population actually on the map. Well, the problem is there's a reason that neighborhood doesn't require extra districts to take because it's kind of worthless to be building a district for housing and then you have to go to the next three populations to get more housing. That's it's yeah. kind of a, a zero-sum problem. Yeah, yeah. Not to mention you have to choose between more population and something specific. That just causes problems. Neighborhoods are really about getting tall. Recorded for episode 289 with Makalua, the me and team, Matt Jin, Ixnay, and Mike W. Let's talk about uh, border expansion points. We got a thread here from Wolf2911. It says, Culture has become more and more important in Civilization, and Civilization VI now has its own civics tree. So, I think it makes sense to introduce new points, which are only for border expansion. We could call them border expansion points. Cultural and military buildings would provide these points. Uh, that's what's called culture? And Basically, culture provides wants, those points. He wants, he wants to build military, forts that are culture bonds? Yeah, he wants military to also contribute, basically. Well, that's, yeah. it, well, if you run a specialist in an encampment, it also provides culture. So, it does. Already. Yeah, but I think yeah. this is the thing where you specifically have some tiles you want to get, and you know it's either like at the edge of the third ring or something, and it's never going to go out there the way the game selects tiles. Well, that's just different. Yeah, you could make a case for being able to steer border expansion to some degree, but that's different from this. Mm -hmm. Well, here's a question. Let's ignore culture. Let's just say culture is no longer the thing that expands your borders. Let's make it tourism. Bigger tourism provides bigger expansion. Can you even get tourism in that degree early game? You get some writers. 
I guess. Some relics. Not to the extent that you relics. get culture. Yeah, relics. Some wonders. It just feels like you would be, in practice, just constrained to whatever you're willing to buy in terms of tiles in your starting ring. Yeah. For, like, a good chunk of the game. Probably. <laughs> I don't know. It's better than renaming culture to influence or border expansion points. I don't see what's broken in the first place here. Yeah. Unless, I mean, like, unless you want to just be able to place where your city's going to expand its culture. Yeah. See, I would personally, the only thing I would really look at changing right now, well, other than the curve, obviously, the curve might be a little rough yes. for the amount of culture you get. I would be able to, say, select the tile that you're going to culture, like in yeah. most games. Well, that's what I was saying, too, just yeah. a moment ago. Yes. Yeah. Do that. If you can pick the one that's going to be expanded into, then great. And if it costs a little more to take that very rough terrain versus the open terrain, that's fine. Yeah. Make it take a little longer if you don't go where it's automatic. Have a small yeah. cost with that. Okay. Well, Once no, you, not, you have to pre-select the next one. No, no, I mean, no. cost a little more in culture. No, no, like, I'd, I'd say different you tile, want that hill, different tiles it have... It costs 25 instead of 20 or something. Yeah, but not the automatic versus not. I would oh, okay. say, yeah, I'd say let it pick something automatically, and if you don't like it, you can change it. All right. But then, see that iron tile. Maybe you have a higher cost for taking that iron resource within your city than, say, an open field. You're exerting your claim to it in a permanent fashion. Maybe it'll cost a little bit more. Plus, they're worth more. And then, hey, you could also interact saying, maybe if there's a different civs city also within range of that resource, it costs more. Because you're fighting over it. Say, no, I own Assuming someone doesn't just buy it immediately. Well, you could also jack the price on the gold cost, too. Yeah. So, basically, you can contest the resources in between, rather than somebody showing up and just going, hey, everything within three is mine. And even your scouts could do all the claiming. Like, while they're out scouting, they're like, yeah, hey, guys, there's mine over here. Claim it. But then, again, I would also like Border Wars, where you can contest specific tiles. Oh, boy. Bring back the You Got Served at Civ 4. <laughs> Who likes the Sistine Chapel? Who? Yep. Let's see it. <laughs> well, no, not culturally contest, but like saying, okay, there's an iron resource within range of both of our cities, but you spent all your cash buying it. I'm going to go to war with you to get that iron mine flipped over to my city instead. So oh, instead, okay. of, instead of actually taking your city, I just take the resource. I see. That'd be pretty niche, but I guess you would see it here and there. Yeah. And you could just park your military units on it. Granted, I mean, there's also really cool things you can do with border expansion, which is have units, instead of, you know, culturally expanding, just do away with that concept, have your units claim territory and, you know, plant a flag. Plant a flag in this area. This is all ours. And then where flags start overlapping, no one actually gets it until you resolve that. That way you could say, like, Canada. Canada cut a line across the parallel and said, this is us. <laughs> Everything north of this is us. Everything south of this is yours. The U.S. and Canada agreed. And they said, yep, good enough. So something along that line, I, I think, would probably be a better system. That way you could also have less cities, but still claim a bunch of land. And then fight over it even more when people get pissy settling at each other. Yeah, I'm just settling in my claim plans. Yeah. Which and is like two-thirds of this continent, so get wrecked. Yep. As diplomacy gets more refined through the ages, you could have border agreements, and then you don't have to worry about pressurization or somebody settling close to you because you know that they're not going to get the stuff on the other side. You can make agreements with people to respect each other's borders, which would improve diplomatic ties. 
and then say if you go conquer somebody and no one else agrees that that's actually your land, then that could be a CV because no one else agrees with you. Mostly if their swords are as convincing as their words. Exactly. <laughs> if you didn't like it, you should have built a bigger army and sent them out to claim more of the land first. Yeah. Or right. you could fight a war saying, you know. Or you can build a bigger army now. Yeah. Build a bigger <laughs> army now and say, nope, we're planting flags all over this. And if it's not within range of a city, then it could auto flip because you're not backing up your claim. Yeah, you said your borders are all the way to mountain range, but I don't see your units on that side of the mountain range. Yeah, I don't see your stuff over here. Have fun. <laughs> and then you can set up encampments in, inside the mountains. He's like, nope, everything on this side of the mountains is mine. You can't come get it. I can force project to make sure that I have control over it. My mountain pass. You shall not pass. Let's flood the area with missionaries. Oh, God. Oh. <laughs> for episode 290 with Dan Q, Makalua, the Mian team, Bite, and Ziti Zarish. Civ series tops video games schools should let you play quote-unquote list over on WatchMojo, and like we've never featured WatchMojo before. Of course we have. Also worth mentioning that Minecraft came in third, and as a teacher, a secondary school teacher in Ontario, I have used Minecraft. Of course, it always depends on what courses you're teaching and the school that you are at. But even if I was still at the same school teaching the same courses that I used to teach Minecraft a couple of years ago, Microsoft, Microsoft went and purchased the educational version of Minecraft, and now you have to have Windows 10 in order to run it. When you're talking about a very large school board with tens of thousands of students and 40, 50 schools, let's upgrade everything from Windows 7 Professional Edition to Windows 10. Also, just quote-unquote, just so that we can run Minecraft, at least in some places, that's definitely going to be a problem. It's terrible. And you might say, well, Dan, just use the commercial version of Minecraft. Well, you could, but there's an economical advantage for the educational version, number one. Plus, not every secondary school teacher would be as comfortable with Minecraft controls as I am. Mm. The educational version of Minecraft has a user interface that's similar to the player, but for the teacher in order to be able to set things up. Much more user-friendly. But anyway, yes, Civilization was the top of the list. Sure, SimCity gave you a taste of the power that comes with ruling over a city, but how would you like to seize control over an entire empire? Sid Meier's Civilization is, in many ways, the perfect video game for the classroom. It's a great learning tool when it comes to teaching how societies are built and what makes them thrive. Players have to use their brains to strategize appropriately and make sure their civilization comes out on top. And all of that puts Civilization at the top of our list. Well, teachers, what are you waiting for? Screw that. Use it to teach them critical thinking. That seems to be lacking. I agree with the critical thinking, absolutely. Teaching how societies are built? Uh, no. No. Uh, no. At the tip of a sword, so historically? Yeah, okay. That's, that's kind of true. <laughs> like, following the footsteps of the Roman Empire, this is how we build society. Stomp. Yeah, okay. All right. Squish. And what makes societies thrive? Um, if societies and Civ worked like they do in the real world, A, that would be weird, and B, why would we be playing this game when we could just experience it in real life? Yeah. Because <laughs> you can get through a game faster than you can get through an Empire's lifespan, IRL. 
<laughs> that being said, if you're a student and you can con your teacher into playing Civ because it's quote unquote educational, good for you. Yeah. I try and stomp your teacher at it too. Yeah. If you want to be Dan, I'll give you lessons. I, I wouldn't say conning is involved here. I'd take a little exception to that. But it would need to be meaningful, which towards what Phil said, and we've talked about civilization as an educational tool before on this show, that it really, it comes down to the critical thinking. And I tell my students, honestly, if you remember 10% of the content, even the day after the course is over, that's fantastic. But if I've taught you how to think about what it is that you are going to do and what the risk reward is and being able to decide that and then use that to make a decision in your life, personal, professional, or whatever then that's really what it was all about because those are the things that you're going to be able to take from one part of your life to another. So then you don't have to ask, when am I going to use calculus in my real life? Well, when are you going to use critical thinking in your real life? And yes, civilization can do that, but the tool, civilization and Minecraft, is only as good as the person who is using it for educational purposes. Civilization will not teach you. Civilization can help teachers teach you. And yes, I will also say, civilization can help students show teachers how to learn. And one of the good things about Civ, at the very least, is that it ha- has a lot of potential for tangential learning. There are so many things that will just pop up in Civ. You know, there's probably students who have no idea that the Mali Empire existed, or that Torres del Pani exists in the world, and things like that. So there is that sort of tangential side of Civ that is probably going to be at least useful for a trivia night. And also good for prompting questions as well as inquiry, so you can clarify, no, honey, Gandhi did not like nukes. You see, but actually... But they also had a Stanley Parable. I feel like that's one of the best ones to have in there. Actually just make you think about what's going on. That's the best one. I feel more like Civ is more to get you interested and to kind of, if you can visually see, you know, what's going on and kind of see the progress of how things are laid out, like in a game sense, then... It'll make make it more interesting because otherwise, like I don't know about you guys, but like when I sit in those classes, it's like I, I like to have some visual like idea of what was going on, and I, I feel like that helps kind of build that refer back to it when you're in class. So it, I feel like it's like it builds a background that it also uh, gets you interested. I feel like that's like the, the big thing for Civ. I don't I don't know why they keep saying that it's like such a great tool for education, but make the students play paradox games, troll all. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm immediately suspicious of this list because it has Spore in there, and Spore is my number one most disappointing game of all time. So I'm immediately suspect. Well, but in the biology class, I wouldn't evolution. put it that high. I've never played it though, so maybe that's why it wasn't much of a disappointment. I I didn't believe it <laughs> from the I, start. I felt like it was decent, but I I wasn't hyped by like what happened. So like I just came in kind of blind. But I thought it got boring pretty quick. It definitely shows you how evolution works to a certain degree, so I thought that was cool. Yeah, it was good to see SimCity on the list, of course, and SimCity was also mentioned in the description for Civilization. And, and as for Spore being a disappointment, well, children have to learn about disappointments sooner rather than later, <laughs> so... Yes. But go. that's what Kinder Surprise is for. <laughs> Kinder Disappointment. <laughs> Recorded for episode 292 with Dan Q. Makalua. The main team, Mad Jin, and one crazy Canadian. Just this phrase itself will probably cause some grr and args, as well as apparently lots of mm-hmm, mm-hmm, What Civilization VI could learn from, wait for it, Civilization Call to Power. Say what? <laughs> <laughs> I had never even heard of that game until today. 
was an article back in July over on uh, Rock Paper Shotgun, which was linked to from a more recent thread here in October on Civilization Fanatic Center. And from that thread itself, this person was saying, I agree that from the mid-game on, it feels like there isn't much to do, you can do, except going to war in Civ Six. So if you're the warmonger type of player, you just wish to win by domination, I think it's not all that bad. But what if you don't want to make use of military and be offensive, defensive in some other way? Well, I think that Civ Six has a couple of things to learn from Call to Power. Yes, I know it was a flawed game, unbalanced, and with some weird design choices, but nonetheless I spent many hours playing with it back in the days, and I must say it had some interesting units and mechanics which could improve the second half of the game, the second half of the game, of course, being Civilization VI. Essentially what the author on Rock, Paper, Shotgun is saying, Robert Zack, is what the Civilization series, the mainline, air quote, Civilization series does well, which is the early to mid-game. In particular, the early game, Civilization Call to Power rushes through. There really isn't anything remarkable, and in fact, it wasn't even an improvement on Civilization II, which had been released a few years prior. So those of you wondering, we're talking about the release of Civilization Call to Power in 1999. Wow. So yes, last century. It was just a little, little while ago. And the first thing that is noted as a variable in Call to Power, quote-unquote, is the lack of workers which have been replaced by a public works tax. So you decide what portion of your empire's production you want to dictate to a public works project like mines, farms, and fishing nets, as well as more tactical structures like watchtowers and air bases later on. So you would just place on the map what it is that you wanted in terms of those improvements, rather than a worker or now in Civilization VI, a builder with limited charges. The other thing that was highlighted was the slavery system that was in Civilization Cult Power. In Cult of Power, slavery is as close as Civ has ever gotten to some kind of global economy, where a shift in the status quo can send the whole system into disarray, seriously damaging dominant nations in the old world and making it easier for new, more progressive nations to rise up. It's a bold mechanic and one that would be welcome in Civ today. It does acknowledge the slavery mechanic in Civilization IV, but that it doesn't have the sweeping changes that come about the world saying no to slavery in Civilization Call to Power and the time at which it appears in the game, which you've got kind of this trajectory of this nation has, has been dominant for some time and is going to continue to be dominant, but then if their economy is still based on slavery, then it could send them into disarray, allowing a civilization that otherwise perhaps would not have a chance to rise above and essentially have like a second or maybe even a third act to the game when it seemed like the game was already said and done other than pressing and turn. There's definitely a lot of interesting aspects about how he phrases slavery in called power. It's almost like people can steal population, uses cheap labor or immigration not going to your cities because of slavery. It's also commented that Call to Power does away with its siblings' welcoming personality, dropping the beloved city views of previous games, cutting down on diplomacy, yet none of these things really matter when the world is an eclectic circus of bizarre bureaucracy, absurd units, and strange technologies. Everything from your floating head evangelists. <laughs> Televangelists, I remember those. <laughs> that go in and spreading, you know, essentially doom and making your citizens very unhappy because it is about to be the end of days to the fact that you could go into space. If there was Poland in the game, then Poland could have, in fact, gone into space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a space layer and there was an underwater layer once you got to certain technology as well. Yes, which we would not see again in the Civilization series until, excuse me, Civilization Beyond Earth Rising Tide. 
I wish these writers would put a little bit more emphasis on why these mechanics matter, why you would think about them in gameplay, as opposed to just saying, hey, crap happened to me, and I thought it was neat in this strategy <laughs> game. Because <laughs> that's most of what I took away from the RFL. Like, I admit I might have missed something here, but I'm not seeing what you should be learning here, aside from maybe making a different tone? Question mark. What I took from it is just the drastic steps they took in having all this different stuff guess you could say the civilization series doesn't take too many risks the civ 6 already has broken mechanics and this just sounds based on their description of it like it's a complete fiesta now maybe that's not being fair to call the power because the article is just poorly written but it, it sounds awful from a balance slash what you're thinking about doing standpoint <laughs> but again that might be unfair to the game no, it was fun, but some of the stuff was a little bit unbalanced. It, being that it came out in 99, it wasn't one that got a second or third patch to really, or a later months down the road patch to balance things out. I'm just thinking, like, with some of the things mentioned, where's the counterplay to some of this? I mean, obviously with slavery and people taking your people, you could just not run slavery. But aside from that. It also has global warming. Yeah, uh, well. We can skip that. Nobody you, that. Again, like you can have a game implement global warming in a way where you're making decisions about things that influence it and have meaningful consequences in the game. What you don't want is gutter tier garbage trash like Civ 4, where it really doesn't matter because it affects everybody equally. It just randomly throws down desert squares all over the place. So it, it doesn't manifest any plausible coherent way nor does it have any net impact on the relative strength of the empires in the game so it, it ultimately it just doesn't matter and it's still annoying it's not a good mechanic it's not the way you implement a mechanic you want your mechanics to matter for some reason yeah i kind of like to the public work system because you had to think about what you were doing to earn the points so that you could build all the roads and things like that it wasn't just as simple as here's a unit now here go build roads i mean i'm glad that we've got to the point in civ six where you've got the instantaneous building so let me wait five turns for this thing to get built oh by the way my unit's gonna get stolen in the meantime yeah trying to remember because literally this is last decade kids since i played it it came out last century (laughs) trying to remember (laughs) all the things yeah it was really less about how call to power implemented these things specifically in civilization call to power although there was the call to power 2 released in 2000 without civilization in its title and that's a whole other separate story that really the only people that won in those cases were the lawyers over the lawsuits (laughs) (laughs) but in civilization call to power 2 it paired back on what is described in the rock paper shotgun article as the unnecessary bloat like space colonization and in other words he says that they attempted to create not only an alternative unit history but also a future and it overstretched itself. So more about look at what it is that they tried to do, such as systems like that, and then find a way of incorporating that into the mainline Civilization game, which in the case of both Call to Power titles, you played until the year 3000. So it was intended to go beyond, again, just that alternative human history, but then to also essentially try to be what we would regard as, say, Civilization Five, and then Civilization Beyond Earth, together in one particular game yeah i guess he's saying that there's just a lot of things you could have done for the uh late game or mid game that would be more interesting and keep you engaged while you're waiting to get to one of these victory conditions yeah the civilization call to power was a little better in terms of the ideas department not so much an implementation department yeah (laughs) ideas yes implementation not so much this kind of need to go hand in hand though but yeah yeah 
Yes, and the underlying argument being that Civilization VI is playing it a little too safe with regards to what it is that it is including, and it's just trying to tweak and expand or add on what is already done before rather than trying to bring in something new altogether, or at the very least something very different than how it would have ever been addressed before in the series. Which, seeing as how with Civilization Call to Power, it was, as described, an inexperienced development team at Activision. So this was not developed by Sid Meier and Firaxis. It had nothing to do with them. So you've got people who are coming into an already established series, and they're trying to recreate in their own right, because it just didn't want to be said, well, you're just a Civilization clone, what's different about you? But they tried to do the old as new, and then the radical as new as well. And I, I got the inference that if they had been given a chance, or maybe from the beginning, they should have tried to be something that was more the equivalent of Civilization II in the day, and a little bit better, and then built on that foundation, and then perhaps to try to go beyond into space and or water cities in Cult of Power II. Because that was another part of the argument in the article, is they tried to do both of these fantastical things, and they both failed fantastically. So what was enjoyable about it was how, just how much of an absolute unorganized mess it could become. And how there, <laughs> there weren't necessarily things that you could counter, that you could do in response, although there was that to a limited degree. It was just no turns were boring because you were trying to say, I'm sorry, what the bleep just happened? As opposed to, oh, nothing happened because all I did was press end turn and the game isn't over yet. I feel like if you're just hitting end turn, the designers need to come up with a way to end the game. Because if you, if you really don't have meaningful yeah. choices left, it's over. Yeah, you functionally much. won, but you haven't technically won. Yeah. When does the game of Civ end? When you get to the point when you're unstoppable or when you actually get a victory condition? There's too much time between those two. Way too much time. Always has been. It's not a new problem in Civ. And the argument being that Call to Power didn't suffer from that. Uh, no. It suffered from... <laughs> <laughs> oh, it suffered from... Going too fast as opposed to too slow, but that Civilization VI should be looking more at what Call to Power tried to do but didn't do well as opposed to all but ignoring it completely, in the context of Civilization VI. Because, of course, at the time Call to Power came out, Water Cities, Underwater Cities, no, no such a thing. And it was also came out in the same year as Alpha Centauri came out. Mm -hmm. So when a lot of that development would have been done for Call to Power, it was also, oh, that's not in Civilization either, other than, yay, your game ends because of Space Victory, because you've landed on Alpha Centauri, but then that was the end game. It was, no, let's actually expand on that and incorporate that into the next phase, like the next era in the game. Recorded for episode 295 with Dan Q, Makalua, the Mian team, Mad Jin, and Mega Bears fan. This is something that we have talked about on the show before, and that's the history of the Civilization series. And there is a new one that's from uh, PC Gamer. It's by Fraser Brown. And I am not going to be talking about the entire article. I was trying to pull out details that we have not talked about from previous articles and or interviews with people that have been involved in the development and or publishing of Civilization in the past. And yes, this complete history of Civilization article also interviewed all of the previous designers for Civilization, right from Civilization 1 to the present in Civilization 6. For the original Civilization, we were young and we had no fear. We don't know if this is going to be successful or not, so there really were no expectations at all. But one thing that Sid Meier wanted to include were recognizable names. 
So, okay, we're talking about this particular civilization. Who's well-known in France? Okay, Napoleon. Who's well-known with India? Okay, Gandhi. And then that was part of the effort to try to get people to play the game because there really wasn't anything quite like it exactly. Because then we get to Civilization II, which is described as an empire built on the word of mouth. SimCity 2000 came out. Its predecessor had been one of Civilization's influences, but SimCity 2000 offered up proof that sequels could work and Microprose, which was developing and publishing Civilization, had never done a sequel to any of their games before. Plus, how do you make a sequel to a game that covered up all of human history? Well, quote, Luckily, designer Brian Reynolds had a long list of desired features from players who had taken to Usenet groups to tell Microprose what they wanted to see, unquote. I thought, oh wow, Usenet, there's not something I've heard of or thought of or used in a very, very long time. <laughs> there was greater emphasis on ways to win other than conquest, but there was still combat. Thanks to hit points, it was dramatically enhanced. Plus, it also made where the area units from matter more. The issue was that in 1993, so this was a few years before Civilization II was released, but just when Civilization II was starting to be developed, that Microprose was sold to Spectrum Holobyte and... They were more interested in investing in a multiplayer remake of Civilization. There was also no confidence in the game. The publisher estimated poor sales, but by the time Reynolds left the company, it had sold two and a half million. And at that point, Spectrum Holobyte said, hey, I guess we would like a Civilization 3 because sequels can work. Well, we know that at that point was Civilization 3, and eventually, I'm going to condense this considerably, Sid Meier is now working on it again. It is now being held by the developer uh, for Axis Games. And this is where we get the one-third the same, one-third new, and one-third improved approach to experimentation in this place. Now, Jeff Briggs, who was the designer for Civilization III, was never intended to be the original designer. Being interviewed for this article, he describes himself as being left as the default designer after Brian Reynolds left to start Big Huge Games. But they wanted to give each civilization some sort of starting power. Culture was introduced, so border expansion to have this shared culture experience. Briggs regrets the corruption system. To be honest, I don't recall it ever coming up during development as a problem. I think we just all accepted it as part of the system, and we were a little afraid to mess with it. Oops. Unquote. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oops. Just putting it mildly. (laughs) Nice. While Civilization III proved to be one of the more divisive games among veteran players, it was another success for the series. And I thought, well said, actually. (laughs) Divisive, yes. Yes, we may (laughs) or may not have talked about Civilization III. We may or may not have corruption trauma, but hey. (laughs) Hey, I started with Civilization III, and uh, I went on to play Civ IV, so it must not have been that bad. Yeah, but you see, you didn't have the benefit of Civilization and Civilization II, where you didn't have to experience that crap. True. So you just thought it was normal to accept that crap, and that's the Civilization <laughs> experience, which was yeah. accept crap, which actually probably helped you stay in the series going forward, because there would be just different types of crap that you would have to and continue to have to deal with. So really, you were in it for the long haul from the beginning, and you didn't even realize it. Well, and it <laughs> means that Civ Four just totally knocked my socks off, because blew all expectations out of the water. <laughs> Civilization Four uh, was built on a new 3D engine, accessible modding, and multiplayer. And indeed, it was built initially as a multiplayer game, not a single-player game. So as designer Soren Johnson describes it, we knew that every system worked in multiplayer, uh, unquote. Many features developed or established in Civ Four have continued through the last two games. So I thought this was an interesting comment from Soren Johnson, that 
I feel like the franchise begins with Civ 4 because the blueprint for how to keep iterating sort of starts there. There's a path that's been followed by Civ 5 and Civ 6 in terms of the amount of stuff you can add to the game, how you manage things, and the expansion format, unquote. Halfway through development, the game was dropped by its publisher and sold to Take-Two, yet Johnson remained confident. Civilization 4 went on to become a series favorite. Civilization 5, described as squares are dead, long live hexes. New lead designer, 21-year-old John Schaefer. Development started in early 2007. He wanted to bring hexes about, but he wanted to do some more controversial things as well, along with the hexes, getting rid of the stack of doom. It was one of the biggest changes to the combat in the series' long history, and Schaefer is unexpectedly ambivalent about it now. So in being contacted by GameRanks to comment on this article, Schaefer says, quote, I don't think the one unit per tile system works very well, though it's probably funny hearing me say that. It was an experiment, and it's something that's changed the series. A stack model is probably better, however. It's more suited to a game of civilization scope, unquote. I kind of agree with that. I think the biggest issue is with scale. I think if the maps were a lot bigger and there were a lot more empty space between landmarks and cities, then the one unit per hex would work a lot better. But then at the same time, you'd also have a lot more micromanagement. and That might be a problem. So I kind of agree with him in some ways, but in other ways, I, I really like it. So eh. could just go easier on performance and actually make there be like five to ten times the hexes on the map. That's not an impossible thing to do in principle. But they just won't do it. Yeah, or there could be some kind of hybrid approach where maybe you have like two different layers. Maybe there's like an empire layer and then like a unit layer where you like zoom in on a specific hex and then it breaks up into a bunch of smaller hexes and that's where all the combat happens. So you're moving armies around on the empire grand campaign map as stacks. And then when you meet other armies, they split off into individual units. That could be one way as well to resolve the scale issue. But again, I don't know how well that would work. Well, that's Endless Legend version. Yeah, kind of like that. Although I think Endless Legend just basically takes the stack, pulls all the units out onto the same map, doesn't it? Or does it actually well, yeah. have smaller? Well, like, no, I was thinking it, it more uses like... the same map, but it's uh, for combat is separate from the main yeah, map. Yeah, I was thinking something more like you'd like actually like zoom in on the hex, so like the one hex with the stacks would then be broken up into a bunch of smaller hexes with features more appropriate to a battlefield. So rivers would be broken up into tributaries and stuff like that. So like Mom, Master of Magic, they had stacks, but when combat happens, it flashed to completely separate yeah. game battle map that was based on the local terrain. Yeah, and played a lot of strategy games that have done stuff like that. Total War does that with its maps and you know other games as well. So it's not unprecedented, but I'm not entirely sure that that would be the solution to the problem in the context of Civ, because Civ is all about the big, broad strokes and not the little, tiny minutia. So eh, it's a balancing act, and so far I just haven't felt comfortable with either of the two extremes, the stacks or the one unit per tile. Yeah, there's multiple ways to handle combat on a strategic map game, and they've a lot of them have been tried over time. So it just sort of depends on the type of game and yeah. what's more important. Civ tries to carry that balance between different extremes. Right, but I definitely understand John Schaefer's ambivalence because I, I have a love-hate relationship with the one unit per tile hex grid as well. And then we get to Civilization Six which is described as letting it all hang out. And I'm thinking, oh, who wears short shorts? We've got Ed Beach, who was, of course, the lead on the two expansions for Civilization V, so it's described as not surprising that the pair share a lot of similarities. And 
Ever since it appeared in the third game, culture has evolved into one of the key pillars of the Civilization series, and for Beach, it was a priority in Brave New World, which saw the introduction of the tourism system, which then became a priority in Civ Six, culminating in a new progression system that put culture on the same level as science, complete with its own tree, but for civics rather than technology. And, of course, right from the outset, the earliest notion of, wait for it, Majin's favorite thing in the whole wide world, unstacking cities. Yay! Which was conceived of before, apparently, Civilization V had even shipped. But, in this case, for Civ VI, it was the first thing that the team got working on. Unlike the other entries in the history of this series, Civilization VI isn't finished yet. The game launched in 2016, and new civilizations and systematic changes are still being planned by Beach and his team. Indeed, the history of Civilization is never really finished. Until the aliens arrive and wipe us out. And then, well, you know. Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign. Collective achievements. Personal incentives. Month-to-month commitment. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon. Call in today. In North America, 301-637-7659. In Europe, 44-121-288-7659. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. Log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net. Record dates assorted. 2017. Civilization 4, 5, and Beyond Earth sound clips copyright take to interactive. Copyright civilized communication at civcom.net.